God, what grace that we get to uh, gather here this morning and to be able to be encouraged by your word, be encouraged with uh, one another and the fellowship that, uh, that exists here. Lord, what grace uh, it is just to think about the fact that you've chosen us, or to be saved, be part of your family. Uh, there are no reasons that we can come up with of why you have chosen us. We, we can come up with thousands of reasons to not choose us, and yet it is grace that you have chosen us. So we, we praise you for that. Help us, Lord, just to see your grace even in this passage. We pray for your help, that you would be our teacher through your spirit um, as we look at 1 Samuel 26. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I was having a conversation about faith with one of my daughters last week. Uh, we were talking about uh, the very complicated topic of being justified by faith alone in Jesus and yet how that faith is never completely alone. That true faith will always have with it good works that follow, but it's faith that saves you, not our own performance. So naturally, the question was raised in that conversation, well, how do you know if faith is actually genuine then? She's having friends at school who are talking about you can believe or have faith in anything, and she's like, Daddy, that doesn't match up. So we talked about John 14, 6, Jesus being the, the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then James 2, uh, faith without works is dead, and how those two ideas come together. Uh, it was a great conversation. Of course, it was right before bedtime, which is her strategy to stall all the more. But I share that with you because I do wonder how many of us, even in this room, wrestle with that same question. How do I know if my faith is genuine? Have you ever wrestled through that? Have you ever wrestled through, I know I believe, um, I, I know I, I believe in Jesus, but how do I know if my faith is real? How do I know if my faith is strong, if it's, if it's solid? Maybe you've always believed in Jesus. Maybe your, your parents have always believed in Jesus. Maybe it's the, the convenient thing to do is to believe in Jesus, but you're wondering, how do I know if my faith is actually real? It's a great question to wrestle with. Let me just say two things about that. Number one, if you're wrestling through that, don't do it alone. Invite other people into that space, people in this room, staff, elders, we'd love to walk alongside you as you, um, as you wrestle with that important question. But the second thing I would say is that the Bible actually says that one of the best ways to know the quality of your faith is through trials, that trials expose and reveal the genuineness of faith. In fact, 1 Peter 1 describes trials as a fire that tests our faith, just like how gold is tested by fire. Do you know how gold is tested by fire? Gold is tested by being placed in this special pot that is built to withstand extreme heat. And it's, it's melted in a specialized oven at over 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. And the result is that the impurities are melted away and the gold there is shown to be real and pure. Or if it's not gold, that's also revealed in that moment. In the same way, our faith is like gold, 1 Peter 1. And God uses trials like fire to, to test and to refine our faith and, and reveal if it's real and pure or if it's insincere and fake. Trials expose our faith and the quality of our faith. I share that with you because that is exactly what David has been going through the last couple of chapters. 
that we come to chapter 26 of 1 Samuel and we find David in yet another trial. In fact, chapters 24, 25, and 26 form a trio of trials and temptations that are positioned back to back to back in order to show us that God is using this time in the wilderness as a fire in David's life in order to melt away these impurities in his heart before David takes the throne. These trials in the wilderness serve as God's university, if you will, to teach him and to mold him and to prepare him for the next chapter as king over Israel. But there's also something else happening in these chapters. Just to go a a step deeper, this will really make Pastor Joel very happy. The, The theological background of chapters 24 through 26 echo Adam's temptation in the Garden of Eden. You're wondering like, wait, where, where's the garden? Where's Genesis in these chapters? Well, scholars believe that because there are around 80 uses of the words good and evil in the Hebrew throughout 1 Samuel. A lot of usages there. But a third of those appear in these three chapters, chapters 24 through 26. And this creates a link to the tree of knowledge of good and evil in Genesis chapter 2 and 3. And with that background, we are to view these temptations that David goes through in the wilderness as Adam-like temptations, that Adam was tempted in the garden with impatience to, to kind of seize that forbidden fruit instead of trusting and waiting upon the goodness of God. And so in the same way, David has also been tempted with impatience. He's been presented with opportunities to take matters into his own hands, as we've noted the last couple of weeks. He's been tempted to bypass God's timetable, to take shortcuts to power and to not entrust himself to the one who judges justly. We've seen that in chapter 24, when he had Saul right before him. Saul's going potty in the cave. And and David had the opportunity to, to kill him, and yet he restrained himself and he waited He resisted that temptation, unlike Adam and Eve. We saw this last week in chapter 25, the temptation to take matters into his own hands and to seek revenge on Nabal. And through the intervention of God through Abigail, he resisted. Well, we come to chapter 26, and it is strangely familiar. (laughs) It's very, very similar to chapter 24. In fact, let me just highlight a few of those uh, similarities. It's probably jumped out to you as Scott read it for us this morning. But again, just like 24, Saul takes 3,000 men to go hunt for David. We also note uh, in both chapters, Saul's vulnerability. We see David's men, again, uh, exhorting David uh, to kill Saul. We also see David's restraint in both chapters. We see in both chapters, David taking a symbolic item, right? Chapter 24, cutting off a piece of Saul's robe, and now here, the spear and the jug of water. We have David's important speech in both chapters. We have Saul's disingenuous repentance and acknowledgement of David's success in both chapters. We have Saul and David uh, uh, at the end of these chapters return to their own place. Now, there are more similarities I could have added Uh, to this, but uh, that's actually not the main point of this chapter. Uh, Really, the the main point, the the main thrust of this is seen in the differences between these two chapters, something that I'll highlight for us as we move through uh, this morning. I want to outline our time together 
uh, chapter 26 around David's three significant conversations. David has conversations um, with Abishai, his conversation with Abner, and then he has a conversation with uh, King Saul, and that'll form our time together. But first, let's set the scene, these first five verses, and look at the setting. Just as in chapter 24, we find in verse 1, the Ziphites uh, come to Saul and tell him about where David's location was. Saul uh, took with him 3,000 of the best men of Israel, and they go and hunt for David, just like 24, chapter 24. And this also proves, by the way, that uh, Saul's words of repentance from chapter 24 was uh, not genuine. But note, uh, look at verse 3. It tells us that David is in the wilderness. And I know we've been tracking through 1 Samuel. Uh, we've been looking at each of these chapters, but it's also important to realize David spends years in the wilderness, we sometimes lose that kind of frame of reference. Uh, some scholars estimate that he spends over 13 years in the wilderness. It's a long time to be in God's university, being tested by the fire of the wilderness. We note, uh, note look at verse four and five here. David uh, is, is described and he's seen in a different light than chapter 24. In chapter 24, it seemed as if David was defensive or reactionary. It's almost like Saul in the cave, that whole thing just kind of fell into his lap. It was almost accidental. Well, here, David is on the offensive. He's more deliberate. He's even taking the initiative here. He sends out the spies. He learns of Saul's location. He rose and he went where Saul was encamped. It seems like David's on the move in this chapter. But I love verse five. I love that the specificity here is absolutely remarkable. David can see Saul sleeping right in the middle of the camp with the army surrounding him. And it also notes for us that Abner, uh, Saul's number two, his commander is right there near him. And all the details in verse five is not random, right? What's interesting is that in the book of Numbers, as the Israelites were in the wilderness, their camp was organized around the tabernacle. And right there in the center was God, the, the divine king of Israel uh, that was enthroned above the cherubim. It's interesting that here in verse five, Saul has his, uh, his army camped in a very similar way, except God's not at the center. It's Saul who's right at the center. Okay? Now, that's the scene for us that's set for us in this chapter, which moves us into the first significant conversation. This is David and Abishai. As David scouts Saul's camp in verse 5, he poses a very bold question in verse 6. Who's going to go down with me uh, to Saul's camp? And if you notice here, he's actually talking to two specific guys. One is Ahimelech, the Hittite, this is a different Ahimelech than the, the priest who was killed a few chapters ago, and Abishai. Abishai is the one who volunteers to go. This is the first mention of Abishai in 1 Samuel. Uh, he will become a very prominent character throughout 1 and especially 2 Samuel. He's actually one of David's nephews, becomes one of David's top soldiers. But every time he shows up in 2 Samuel, he's a hothead. 
He's always looking to kill somebody, okay? And verse seven here leads us to believe these two guys, Abishai and David, are forming kind of a two-man hit squad to kill Saul because they go down to Saul's camp at night. That's the way it's being positioned for us. Okay, again, try to visualize this scene. As you're trying to visualize Saul's camp, where Saul is, David and Abishai are going down here. As you're thinking through that in your mind, pay attention to Saul's spear. Saul's spear, we're told in verse seven, that it is stuck in the ground at his head. Saul's spear has been a dominant, is a dominant symbol throughout this chapter. Saul's spear shows up six different times in chapter 26, and it appears in every one of David's three significant conversations. In fact, Saul's spear has been a significant symbol throughout all of 1 Samuel. We've seen this spear show up time and time again. We've seen it uh, in Saul's hands as he tries to kill David on a number of occasions. He used that spear to try to kill even his own son, Jonathan. We've seen that spear noted throughout 1 Samuel in his hand uh, under a tree or in the palace as he's on the throne there. This spear is a symbol of Saul's authority, more specifically, his abuse of authority. It depicts Saul's oppressive rule. And every time it's mentioned, it's just another reminder for us that Saul is acting just like the king, the kings of the other nations, all right? So keep that in mind as we continue to move through. So here we have, we got David and Abishai. They are right at Saul's camp. Everyone's asleep. And notice what is said in verse eight. Abishai tells David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day, right? We've heard that said before. This is almost identical to what David's men told David in the cave in chapter 24 with Saul there using the restroom, right? But notice he adds something else here. Abishai's like, okay, there's Saul, God's at work here, but let me kill him this time, <laughs> right? You almost wonder, you know, he doesn't trust David to kind of finish the job this time because he didn't in chapter 24 in the cave. But look at David's response, verses nine through 11, right? We, we, we're starting to see the impact of what David learned in chapter 25 come to light here in this chapter, All right? Chapter 25, when David was tempted to get revenge on Nabal, Abigail is used to kind of help David see the big picture, right? And he restrains himself from seeking revenge. We see that even informing David's response here as he tells Abishai not to kill Saul, not to put your hand on the Lord's anointed, right? This is, again, this is another shocking occurrence of David waiting patiently upon the Lord. I mean, he's got Saul sleeping right there, right in front of him, and he could end it all right here in this moment. I mean, this is the guy that's caused David to, to act like a fugitive, away from his family, away from his home, out in the wilderness for years, and yet he doesn't kill him. I think one thing that's so important from what he learned in chapter 25 is that God will take vengeance upon his own timing. Like David, David knew that in chapter 24, obviously he restrained himself from killing Saul, but after chapter 25, he really knows that. Like, like he's, he's absolutely sure because he restrained himself from killing Nabal and God took care of it. 
God took care of Nabal in his own timing. And so here we, we see David doing that again, trusting in the Lord. David restrains himself from killing Saul in the cave. And now here, not because David's a pacifist, nor is he against killing. But we've seen him kill other people in the past, but he's restraining himself because he trusts in God's timing to deal with Saul according to his own way. Now, one thing that we have seen in this chapter, four different times, David will talk about the evil uh, of putting one's hand against the Lord's anointed. Or it happens here in verses nine through 11. It's gonna happen a few other times. And that's important for David. Saul being the anointed king at this moment uh, was important because being anointed, which was an Old Testament concept, was God appointing a specific leader for a specific task for a specific time. And so Saul here being the, the king of Israel, what that meant for David is that God had put him on the throne and it's only God who can take him off the throne. That's why David treats uh, Saul differently than Goliath or other people uh, that he has killed. Even Psalm 105, 1 Chronicles 16 say not to touch God's anointed. Okay, Saul has occupied a position that was sovereignly chosen. Therefore, it was up to the sovereign hand of God to remove him. But there is a valuable lesson in here for us. And it's on the topic of God's timing being perfect. This struck me as I was kind of studying this and looking at, again, David's ability to trust in the Lord. What's amazing here is that David doesn't compromise his convictions. Like he's patient and he waits on the Lord. That's what his restraint demonstrates for, him, for us is that he actually trusts in God. David didn't know exactly how God would deal with Saul or when. We can see that from verse 10, as David rattles off all these possible scenarios of how uh, Saul could actually die. But David didn't know. He didn't know when or how. But David trusts God by believing his promise will come to pass, but it will come to pass according to God's timetable and through God's means. It was not for David to take according to David's timetable and through Abishai's means. Man, what a challenge for us to consider this morning. I wonder how many of us need to be, need to be reminded that God's timetable is not our timetable, right? Don't confuse the two. God does not exist to serve your agenda according to your timeline. And sometimes we get so frustrated when God doesn't do something when we want him to do it, like finding a spouse or getting pregnant or being healed of something or finding a job or having a house being sold or finding a, a house to buy or, or seeing spiritual growth in our own lives or in someone else's life. Like the list goes on and on and on. Example after example after example, where we are tempted to believe that God is asleep up there in heaven. And we would never say that out loud, right? We're, we're good Christians after all with good theology, but there's a part of us that says maybe inside our own minds, like, God, hurry up. God, are you asleep up there? Like you're always late. What are you doing up there, right? These thoughts that 
at times go through our minds because we think that our timetable is better than God's. I want to encourage you this morning, if you feel that way, you're not alone. In fact, one of the prophets in the Old Testament struggled with this. His name is Habakkuk. I want to read a verse for us from Habakkuk chapter 2, but he's, again, one of the prophets in the Old Testament, and he, during the time in which he's writing this, is watching a massive spiritual decline among God's people. He's watching this great foreign, uh, powerful nation, Assyria, take over. He's seeing injustice everywhere, and he's struggling with God's timeline. He's struggling with, God, why aren't you intervening? God, why are you delaying? I know, God, you've promised to bring spiritual transformation. He talks about like this word, the vision. But God, why are you so slow to actually enacting on that promise, right? It's kind of the background here. And so God responds. God's trying to help his prophet with the mindset that we need to be reminded of this morning. He tells Habakkuk, for still the vision awaits its appointed time, the vision of bringing spiritual transformation. It hastens to the day. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. That's <laughs> what so God's telling Habakkuk. He's saying, look, pump the brakes, Habakkuk. I'm never late. My timing is always perfect. God's telling him, look, my vision for bringing about spiritual transformation, it's gonna happen. Like I'm, I'm, never, I'm never delayed. I'm gonna make this happen, but it's going to happen according to my timeline. That's what he tells the prophet here. And this is exactly what David demonstrates for us. David demonstrates that exact point here where David is waiting upon the Lord to, to seek revenge, to avenge him and kill Saul according to his timeline. And this is exactly what God is telling us this morning. Those of us who are struggling with thinking about God's inactivity or God's delay, his timeline is perfect. It's perfect. He doesn't make mistakes in running his universe. And the reason why that's so hard for us is because we love control. We love, we are control addicts. We love controlling every aspect of our lives. We love controlling the timing of when things happen. And when God doesn't match up with our timeline, we freak out. We start blaming him. He's got it wrong instead of wondering, maybe we have it wrong. We struggle with control. We also struggle with impatience. We don't like to wait, right? That's really hard for us. You notice what happens to your spirit at every red light, every long line, right? We struggle with that. But the, the antidote to control and impatience is very simple. It's trust. I know it's not super profound, but it's the answer. It's a deep trust in the Lord. Because what trusting in the Lord does is it releases that white knuckle grip that we have around our plans and our timelines, and it helps us to do this, right? It helps us to exhale and wait. 
Because the way that you get to that place where you truly trust in the Lord, when you get to that place, it's because your heart is convinced that God knows better than you do. That his timeline is perfect. It's better than yours. And when you're convinced by that, you're able to trust. See, it's one thing to be convinced that God knows how to run his own universe, but it's something other to be convinced that God knows how to run your life. Right? Those, those two things are different. <laughs> and I think the second one, the latter, is much more difficult. But the idol of control, the impatience, just notice that in your own heart as you think about God's timeline, because whenever that po pokes its head, it reveals a lack of trust. We notice here, David, he doesn't know when, he doesn't know how, but what David's focused on is just obedience. <laughs> like that, that's such a good word for us. You don't know God's timeline. You don't know necessarily when or how. Focus on what God has called you to, which is faithfulness. It's obedience to him, which is exactly what David puts on display. Now, before we move on to the second important conversation, I think it is worth noting, David does take something in verse 12. He takes Saul's spear and Saul's water jug, right? This isn't like a bully move or kind of picking on Saul. This is kind of a symbolic move of David. Uh, Saul's spear symbolically represented Saul's power. The water jug uh, represented a source of sustenance for uh, Saul in the wilderness. So just catch this, without any violent activity at all, David has symbolically disarmed Saul, and he's demonstrated mercy once again of sparing his life. Right? Again, this is what he did with cutting off his robe in chapter 24, the ability to end Saul, and yet he resisted. I also love verse 12 too. It, it kind of explains how David and Abishai could just sneak into the camp unnoticed, have this lively conversation, take these two objects without being detected, it's because God supernaturally caused a deep sleep to fall upon Saul and his army. This is another allusion or echo of the garden. When God caused a deep sleep, it's the same Hebrew phrase, upon Adam so he could create Eve, right? God intervenes here. Once again, God has kept David, his chosen one, to be safe. Well, this leads us to the second conversation here, this time with David and Abner. After uh, successfully completing their heist, verse 13 tells us that David uh, moves away from Saul's camp, right, puts some distance between the two. And what happens next must have been so unnerving. Right? David, again, escapes to higher ground and kind of interrupts the deep sleep with this loud cry, aren't you going to answer? <laughs> That's how he interrupts this whole thing. Right? Imagine being woken up by that, if you're Saul, if you're Abner, if you're someone in the army, right? Aren't you going to answer, right? I, I, Lindsay and I, we don't have to imagine what that's like. That's how we're woken up every morning by our three-year-old. <laughs> but David, surprisingly, he's not calling to Saul. He's actually calling out to Abner, Saul's general. And the extent of this conversation is centered on David pointing out Abner's failure in protecting Saul, the king. And David's humor is on full display here. And, and through his satire, he proves his own innocence while arguing, if anyone is worthy of being put to death, it's not me, it's you, Abner. 
Like you have failed to protect King Saul. Uh, Just a side note, ironically, it's Abishai's brother, Joab, who will later kill Abner in 2 Samuel chapter three. But there again, verse 16, there's Saul's spear and water jug in David's possession, evidence of Abner's negligence and another reminder that Saul's power is gone, all right? Nothing can keep David from ascending the throne. This is a sign to Saul, but also to David. God will keep his promise. This takes us to the third and final conversation. Finally now, this is David and Saul. Uh, Verse 17 tells us Saul recognizes David's voice and responded to his call. And yes, this conversation does feel like deja vu all over again from chapter 24. So many similarities. Saul calling David his son, asking if this is your voice. David asking him, why are you hunting me? I've done nothing wrong to deserve this. But then David adds something in verse 19 that's new. David is, again, being driven away from the land of Israel And the way that it's phrased in verse 13 makes it seem like David's being tempted to serve other gods. He's clearly not serving other gods, but he feels like he's being forced to because he cannot rightly worship God in the sanctuary because he's being cut off from the tabernacle. He can't rightly participate in these worshipful feasts and festivals, right? There's a a particular location to God's presence during this time period, And David feels cut off from that. And that causes David much grief. And yet, if you're familiar with the Psalms, and in particular, one of the Psalms that David wrote, Psalm 139, we know that one of the lessons that David learned through the wilderness is that he can worship God wherever he is, that he can actually never escape God's presence, right? Psalm 139, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I go from your presence? Right? Just another lesson as, as David is in the wilderness, that he can worship God in the midst of that. Right, Man, I have to show some restraint. That's another sermon in and of itself that could preach all morning long. We've got to move on here. Verse 21, Saul, again, he confesses his sin. He asks David to return, promises not to harm him. Right, We've heard all this before. But then he, he calls his actions foolish. Did you notice that? And he now links himself with who? With Nabal, right? Remember, Nabal's name means fool from the last chapter. This also reminds us of Samuel's words in chapter 13, where Samuel called Saul fool. David's not buying it. Uh, David knows that Saul's words are empty. He sees right through him. In verse 22, it almost feels like David cuts him off here. (laughs) It's not in the text, but as we're visualizing it, it could happen maybe cuts them off. He just says, have one of your servants come and and take your spear back. (laughs) Look at verse 23, though. This is where I want to close. David says that the Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Notice the chapter closes with Saul blessing David. Saul predicting David's success, and they go their own separate ways once again. They're never going to see each other again. This is it for them. They won't talk face to face again. And we see here, again, David passes the third test. Now, 
What David said in verse 23 is very important as we think about the trio of trials that David encountered in, in chapters 24 through 26. It seems like he's learned this main lesson that for God's king, what matters most is righteousness and faithfulness. It's not power. It's not prestige. It's not success. It's not control. It's not cleverness. It's righteousness and faithfulness. This is the big lesson for David as he's learned going through the fire of the wilderness, as God's preparing him to take the throne, as God's kind of melting away maybe the impurities in David's own heart and life of self-reliance and pride and revenge and anger, maybe all those things that were in David's life, God has been allowing him to go through these trials in order to refine his faith and to say, yes, righteousness, faithfulness to the Lord is what's most important. Yeah, however, the time will come when David's righteousness will falter, right? If you know 2 Samuel, you know that his failure in this category of obedience and righteousness will be ever so present, right? And in numerous ways, David will fail. He will fail in not fully trusting in the Lord, but trusting in the amount of men that he has. That's why he did that census, that sinful move of not trusting the Lord. He will fail in adultery with Bathsheba. He will fail in abusing his authority and his power. He will fail in the killing of Uriah. If you track with the character of David here, David shows us that he's not the one true king. David's not the hero of the story. He gives us glimpses, perhaps even shadows, but more than anything, David should fill us with longings for a better king the one true king. See, for us on this side of the cross, David is pointing us forward to the one named Jesus who is described as the righteous one in 1 John 2. Jesus is described as the faithful one in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. That Jesus is the quintessential of righteousness and faithfulness altogether. He's in a class, a category all by himself when it comes to righteousness and faithfulness, that he's perfectly righteous and faithful. Now, why does that matter? Why is that so significant? Thinking about Jesus as the righteous one and the faithful one. Because in order to understand salvation, you have to understand righteousness. See, sometimes we can emphasize grace so much, and we should, but sometimes what happens is in the equation of salvation, righteousness gets thrown to the side as if it doesn't matter at all. And righteousness matters a lot in the equation of salvation. And it matters because righteousness is the standard of God's acceptance in order for you and I to be saved. So righteousness matters a whole lot. The problem is, is that none of us are truly righteous. That's the problem. Romans 3.10 says, there is none righteous. No, not even one. That's a significant problem. If God's standard of acceptance for salvation is righteousness and none of us are righteous, That means that you can't save yourself. No matter how 
kind you are, no matter how many good works you do, no matter how many Sunday mornings you attend at church, you cannot save yourself. I say that out of love to you, like I, to speak the truth in love. You can't do it. It's not about God, uh, your good works outweighing your bad works. No, there's not one that is righteous. And what that means is that you need a righteousness outside of yourself in order to be saved. You need a righteousness from the one who is perfectly righteous and his name is Jesus. That it's through Jesus that you can be saved. And this is where grace comes in. That grace is the major thrust of the story of the Bible, of the, of the gospel. Because even though you are unrighteous and unfaithful and a sinner before a holy God, God freely offers grace to you in the form of the righteousness of Jesus. That's what grace is all about. You don't deserve it. You don't earn it. And yet this free gift of eternal life is given to you if you place your faith and trust in Jesus. If you believe in Jesus and say, that is the way to salvation, it's not my good works, guess what happens? You're now united into Jesus. You and Jesus, Jesus and you. And so now his righteousness covers you. It covers you like a robe. You're hidden in Jesus. So when God looks at you, he doesn't see your sin and your unrighteousness and your unfaithfulness. He sees the righteousness of his own son. And that is what God accepts. That is what leads to salvation. And that is why righteousness matters in the realm of salvation. My question for you this morning is, have you come to a place in your life where you have said, I no longer trust in myself and my own performance, but I trust completely in Jesus. Have you made that decision in your life? Have you said, you know what? The way to salvation is not by my church attendance. It's not by my good works. It's not by giving to Christmas offerings. It's through the righteousness of Jesus. It's all because of him. And if you haven't, why not make that decision today? Why not become a Christian, be saved, be forgiven, be justified right here today, this morning? We would love to walk you through what that looks like. We've got people that'd be available. I'll be available down front. We'd love to talk to you about what that looks like to make that decision to be a Christian. But Jesus is what we need. The story of David and all his goodness and his shortcomings ultimately point us forward to the true righteous one named Jesus, the king who can come and reign in your life. Let's pray together. God, we do. We praise you for Jesus. We thank you that he is the hero of the story. He's the hero and the main character of the entire Bible. Lord, I pray that as we think about what it looks like to walk in righteousness, Lord, help us to understand that it's only because of the righteousness of Jesus that we are accepted, that we are made new, that we are justified. And out of that reality, we can actually walk in the good works that you have prepared beforehand. Lord, I pray as we walk through this life, Lord, would you give us the humility to admit that your timing is perfect? Lord, no matter what we are facing, no matter what decision is before us, no matter what's happening in our lives, Lord, help us to be reminded that your timetable is different than ours. 
and that your timetable is perfect. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.